As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I was walking to work one day from the train station about 10 minutes walk from, from the office and 
on my way to work, just in front of me, there was a there was a mother and a little child. She must have been about five years old, and it was a nice spring day. I remember looking at the child and thinking, "Isn't that a beautiful sight?" A mother and a daughter. They were holding hands, and I still remember the, the little girl to this day. She had a yellow dress on, was carrying a a teddy bear that was sort of almost trailing along along the footpath as she walked down. And as I walk in front of me, they were about not about a hundred meters from my office, and I remember my um my heart started beating really fast, and I thought, "What's going on here? Am I having a heart attack? What's what's going on?" And as the the mother and the daughter got closer and closer to my office, I started to think, "Oh no, that girl's coming here for an interview." And from that moment, that child went from little girl holding a teddy bear, cute little girl, to a victim of child sexual abuse because I knew exactly what she was there for. Hamish McKenzie is the Detective Superintendent of the Western Australia Sex Crimes Division. That means he's the boss. He's also a doctor, not a medical doctor, but a PhD of philosophy. He definitely sounds more like a policeman than a philosopher, as you're about to hear. Sex crimes is a very challenging area of policing, and Western Australia is a very challenging jurisdiction. It's the kind of place that elicits jaw-dropping trivia like this. All of Western Europe could fit inside Western Australia. But Western Europe has a population of 195 million people, whereas Western Australia has a population of just 2.6 million people. And they're very spread out and very diverse. Western Australia is the largest single policing jurisdiction in the world. Most of it is desert, and it's home to some of the most lucrative mining on the planet, which means lots of fly-in, fly-out workers. 8.7% of the state, some 22 million hectares of land, is governed by the Aboriginal Lands Trust. And there are an estimated 12,000 people living in settlements in those lands. All of which means that policing, like everything else, is done differently in WA. But according to Hamish McKenzie, child sexual assault is the one area of law enforcement where egos really do take a backseat to results. He joins us on Australian True Crime, which serving officers rarely do, so we're very grateful to talk about his work and how we can continue to work together in child protection. So we have responsibility across the state of Western Australia for all sex crime-related matters, and that's not only children, but that's for adults as well. And we also manage the Serious Offender Management Squad, so they manage the 4,000 reportable sex offenders throughout Western Australia. So, So we've got quite a big responsibility throughout the state to respond to sex crimes. On occasions, we will uh, travel to the north of Western Australia, and that involves a maybe a five, six-hour flight, perhaps longer with a few uh, stopovers. So we'll deploy anywhere as required. In the olden days, you know, oftentimes we cover crimes from, say, the 70s, the 1970s. When I say olden days, it's not that long ago. And people would go on the run, criminals would go on the run from the eastern seaboard, from Sydney and Melbourne. They'd go on the run to Western Australia. They'd go and hide in Perth. But in the days before the internet, you know, it seemed like such a long way away. And that's your jurisdiction, is that that huge state. has? So how many officers do you have in your division? So we have just over 200 officers, uh, but we are supported by other specialist areas as well as uh, the specialist detectives in the in the country. So throughout 
regional West Australia. So there's a number of detectives office, offices that we work um, very closely with. And of course, we can draw on um, officers from all throughout the WA police, um, not just my own area, but anywhere, including our intelligence divisions and uh, other specialist support areas. How many Indigenous officers do you have? And I asked that question because, and, and I specified Indigenous because your jurisdiction takes in Indigenous communities. You've got, I don't know how many, you would know better than I do, communities that are the home of only Indigenous people. And so you're you're having to work within Indigenous law in those communities. Those communities themselves are diverse. They, they're not one culture or one nation. That's a fine line for you to walk to, isn't it? It is, and that's a constant for us, is building the trust of the community, and that's something we try to do in all areas of police, whether it be, you know, in family, family domestic violence matters, in youth policing, we need to garner the trust, and it can't just be that we have specialist officers who come up from the capital, come up from Perth, to regional locations and expect these communities to trust us, Uh, but we do have local officers who work in those areas who do an outstanding job are officers who work in those remote and regional communities. They do have the trust of the local community and those members of the community do feel comfortable in talking with them. And obviously we like to attract diverse applicants, not just First Nations um, people, but people from all walks of life, whether they're from cold communities or they're diverse in some other way. So because we understand we need to reflect the community that we serve and, um, you know, we want people to feel at ease to report crimes to us and don't want the fact that they're looking at somebody that doesn't look like them be a barrier to reporting. Um, So we're always after recruiting as diverse uh, police officers as we possibly can. What brought you into the sex crimes division when you decided to be a copper? Was this an area that you thought you'd get into or did you sort of just find yourself here? No, in fact, it wasn't an area I thought of. One of my biggest regrets was that as a young detective, I didn't work in this area because at the time I had uh, young children and I always thought that it's an area I should tend to stay away from. And and having worked in this area as the, as head of the division, I, know, I now see that as a mistake because some of the work and some of the experiences these officers and are exposed to obviously are traumatic, but they're certainly so fulfilling for the officers to to be able to come to work every day and really know that you have changed someone's life for the better or you've you've rescued a child from harm, I don't I can't imagine any better um, experience than that. So it, it hasn't been an area I worked in before, but in, in 2017 I was working in um, in Kalgoorlie and I was uh, I was asked whether I, I wanted to come here and I considered it for all of a couple of minutes and I said, Yeah, I think it's something I, I want to do. So I came down to to Perth from Kalgoorlie and as soon as I saw the the work the officers were doing, the types of jobs they were doing, I immediately thought that, you know, I've sort of found my place. And as as corny as it sounds, I I, I tend to think at the time I found my people. These were people who thought like me, who had the same outward-looking view of the world that I did in that, you know, we're here for a purpose. We're here as police officers to, to protect people, to help people. And I really saw this as an area where I could I could do that and I could do it in a compassionate way, uh, in an empathetic way. So that's what drew me to the division in the first place. I know that you, you in particular, you're a specialist in child interviews, in interviewing victims, but 
I also know that in the course of your work, you deal with offenders. And so with that in mind, it's really fascinating to me that you say that you wish in retrospect you had gotten involved when you all earlier and back to when you had small children. Because I agree with you. I'd have thought when you had small children, it'd be too much that emotion could overtake you. And also this goes back to what you're saying about people in the squad having the same worldview as you, because you have to be such a disciplined person. The rest of us think to ourselves, if I ever got in a room with a person who'd sexually assaulted a child, I would kill them. I wouldn't be able to control myself. This is what we think because we've never been in that situation. So how how does that work? How can you interview a person who is a child sex offender? How can you do it at all ever? And how do you and your team do it without having your own family in your mind when you're in that situation? Yeah, look, there's no, no way of sugarcoating it. it. It can be very tough for the officers and it's it's a means by which they compartmentalise, I suppose, what they're, what they're doing and put their emotions aside just for that, that short time that they're dealing with the offender because their aim ultimately is to investigate the matter and, and end up with a successful prosecution. So if they let their emotions come out during an interview, if they let their personal feelings or biases come out with an interview, they can jeopardise um, that prosecution, which may lead to it falling over and, of course, they're not being held to account for something terrible that they have done. But of course, you know, we're all human. We, you know, we, a lot of our officers have, have young families and, you know, I've spoken to many officers who at times um, have struggled with their wellbeing because of the, the work they do. Um, so we work closely with our psychologists. We have two psychologists here within the division. We work closely with them to develop skills for coping and resilience and and how we deal with our own mental health and well-being. And it's a particular passion and focus of mine to ensure um, we're provided and I provide my staff with those skills needed to work in this division because they're not just technical investigative skills, but they certainly need to um, develop coping skills for the mental side of the job, which at times can be challenging. And surely there are people who aren't cut out for it. Yeah, sure. Sure, just like there is in any other occupation, you know, whether you be an electrician or a carpenter, you're on the first day of the job and you think, this is not for me. And that's the undertaking I've given to my staff when they come here. That One of the first things I say in my meetings with all the staff that come through is if at any time you feel like this is not for you and you're struggling, you put your hand up and we'll get you released from the division and we'll find you somewhere else to work. And that's no slight against them. It's just that Everybody is is different, and for some reason, your personal circumstances at the time mean that this is a bit tough for you at the moment, then um, I'll help you to work somewhere else. We have people come back to the vision two, three times, so they, they keep coming back, and I really think it is that intrinsic sense of satisfaction that you're doing something good, uh, and that's what keeps people coming back every day, the ability to help people and of course, you know, not all our outcomes are good outcomes. Some of them, we get frustrated. We have failed prosecutions. We have investigations that we just can't get enough evidence on and, and they're the frustrating ones. You've touched there on failed prosecutions and we know from over the years when we've, whenever we've spoken to police and retired police that that's, you know, the hardest part possibly of the job. 
all the work that goes into putting the brief together and, and investigating and then to have a prosecution fail is incredibly painful. But I would suggest that in your division, I, I can't imagine the jeopardy is any higher in any other division than in yours because if you fail to prosecute, there's potentially a sexual predator still walking the streets afterwards. How do you cope with that? Yep, we, we know the stakes are high in this particular uh, crime type and it can be tough and it is tough when uh, Monaco's prosecutions um, are not successful. And that's uh, not only, um, you know, for our organisations, for all law enforcement agencies across the world who deal with this crime type. What I have found has helped, and, and this occurs uh, a lot of occasions on a, when we do have failed prosecutions, that uh, usually the, the, the victims and their families come to us and say, we don't blame you. you know, we don't blame you for, for what has happened. It's no one's fault. It's the offender's fault. So to have that come from a victim and their families, I it helps a lot. It, it's still tough for us. It's still tough for the victims and their families to see a perpetrator go free. So, yeah, it, it's it's challenging. Definitely, definitely one of the one of the worst parts of our job. That's for sure. Do you have the the means to keep an eye on potential perpetrators after you've had a failed prosecution? Because, as I say, in this scenario, we're then looking at potential victims because we have a. A perpetrator going free. Yes, we do. In, in short, and one of our uh, focuses, I suppose, is to look at um, the risk to the children, not just the children involved in in that particular matter, but any children the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator uh, might come in contact with. So we will certainly look at those whether that person has access to to children through their employment or through sporting groups. You know, if we have a suspicion that anybody in the community is is potential risk to a child, then we will do certain things in the background to to see what we can do to ensure they no longer become a risk. That's good to know. Boy, it's how much leave do you get? <laughs> That's probably a weird question, but I'm just sort of overwhelmed by the responsibility on your shoulders and and the shoulders of your team. The stress would be such a slowly mounting thing that it would be hard for your team members sometimes to realise that they're getting a bit snowed under. Do you find that? Yeah, that's one of the one of the issues we're always looking out for because we find a lot of the research into issues such as anxiety and PTSD is that, you know, the reactions won't occur when the traumatic incident happens, if you like. It'll happen maybe years afterwards. And it's been mentioned to me you know, anxiety and stress is like a bucket and it just keeps filling up and filling up and it, it might just be that one little drop in the top of the bucket, something innocuous, which causes um, people to have a, a negative uh, effect from from all the years and of trauma that they've been through. So it is something we're after and we always tell our staff to, to be on the lookout for those little triggers, whether it's somebody in the office who perhaps overreacts about something that's really small or or just something within the character is not normal on that day. So, you know, there's certainly things and we ask our colleagues and we put the onus back on the individual themselves to, you know, they have a personal responsibility as well. So if they're, they're struggling um, with anything in the workplace or even in the home life, to reach out either to colleagues, friends, family or the psychologists we have working here in the division. Yeah, to self-acknowledge. And similarly, we know that children 
oftentimes their behaviour changes when something has happened to them that they won't speak of it, they won't report something, but their personality might change or something will change within them. What, after all your years of experience, what can you tell us are sort of the telltale signs or the repeated signs that you have heard about from families in kids who are being targeted by sexual predators? There are so many uh, factors and you couldn't point to one. And then, uh, and what I would say, if you see or as a parent or a, a caregiver, you see behaviour from a child that is unusual, that is not part of their normal routine, then there's usually something going on in the background. And that may not be that they are subject to child sexual abuse, but there could be something else going on in the background. What my years of experience working in this division has told me is that children are most often truthful. So if a child tells you that something is happening to them, something bad is happening to them, then I would implore parents and caregivers to, to listen to the child and explore what might be, be going on um, because unfortunately I do hear of occasions where the child hasn't been taken seriously or parents are not as um, protective as they should be to put it bluntly. So please listen to your children because your children are a pretty good gauge of what's going on in their lives. As a parent myself, sometimes you don't want to think the unthinkable is happening to your child. Of course we don't. Yeah. So uh, unusual behaviours, reports of uh, inappropriate contact by someone who may be a close relative, may be a close friend, may be a member of the family. These um, have to be acknowledged by an adult because we we tell our children to to trust adults or friends and families you know so it's important when the child comes to you and says i don't want to go to that place or i don't want to go and see that person then i need to explore appropriately why that may be the case Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I know the online world is really baffling for a lot of us. We just didn't, we didn't grow up with it. And as much as I'm online all the time, I work online, but I still don't understand it as well as my kids do. I have teenagers. I try and stay on top of it. I try and understand it, but I know that I don't understand it like they do. It's, you know, it's gotten away from me. What advice do you have about that when you, when we feel like it's gotten away from us and I feel like they'll be honest with me, but I know that teenagers don't tell their parents everything. I'm not that naive. Yeah, my advice would be, as in any other parts of your child's life, is to be engaged with them and ask them what they're doing Ask them to, to show you the game they're playing. How do you play that game? Can I play that game with you? And it's something I, um, you know, I, I struggle with myself having a, a young daughter who wanted to play games, and I always put my police officer hat on, and you know, and, and nothing freaked me out more than thinking about that something could uh, happen to her, or she could be exposed to something. So I would always ask at any time of day, what game? Show me who you're talking to. Any of those go online games that have chat functions, then I would ask her to turn those off because we know that is a, a, a ripe environment for predators to, to target children. Um, when some of those games have the chat functions and they start talking because the child doesn't know. And my daughter said to me on, on occasions, you don't have to worry about that person. They said that, you know, 14 or 15, you know, my conversation is just because I say that it doesn't mean it's real. So be engaged, and I, I've heard the e-safety commissioner, Julian McGrath, talk before about play the games with your child. Be engaged with them as you would, you know, if your child was involved in kick or any other sporting event, you may kick the ball with your, your child in the, in the backyard or throw a ball to them. Go on to these online games with them and show them, ask them, you know, how do you play that game so you become more involved. And that way, hopefully, when they are approached or when there's something they're not comfortable with in a game, they feel comfortable to come and talk to you about it. Because that's really what them to be comfortable in doing is, you know, we, we unfortunately can't stop predators from preying on children in these games. What we can do is is have have the ability for your child to come and talk to you freely and certainly not, you know, cascade your child because, you know, they may have done something silly online. They may have accidentally disclosed some personal information. So they need to know that there's there's no blame. There's going to be no, no comeback from them if they tell you about something they've been doing. Yeah, we don't want to make them feel like they can't tell us. Exactly. Also, it feels like the online world has actually brought stranger danger back, but it's a reality, whereas, you know, we've we've spent however long being taught that stranger danger is not the message we should be teaching each other and teaching our kids when it comes to sexual assault because most sexual assault in the real world happens, comes from people we know, people in our circle Whereas now, you know, stranger danger is a real thing that we need to worry about and that's online, right? Yeah, that is a, a growing area and it's a particular uh, concern for us as an agency because we have uh, uh, not just our children in, in, in Australia but children all around the world who are being targeted 
it's a global issue and there's a global fight by law enforcement all around the world to tackle this. So one of the things that you know, I mean, you mentioned before about what attracted me to, to this area and one of the things I remember going to a, a conference hosted by the Queensland Police five or so years ago when I first came into the division and I was sitting in a room of 200 people. Some of them were law enforcement experts, some were psychologists, some were teachers, others were uh, academics. And one thing that struck me was everybody was there for the right reason. You know, in other areas of crime, you know, whether it be drugs or firearms, you know, in law enforcement, sometimes it can be a bit bit sexy about who gets the credit for a particular investigation. There are a few cowboys in some other squads, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> But in this crime area, what I found was that uh, nobody cared who got the credit. Um, everybody was there for the right reason. So... You know, when I talk about these were my people, these were kindred spirits who all all thought the, the same as I did. In 2019, so I conducted Interpol in, in Singapore and worked with them in their Crimes Against Children unit. And I've seen the, the effort that goes on in law enforcement from countries who perhaps don't see eye to eye with uh, Western countries such as Australia. And the, um, But when it comes to child sexual abuse, you know, law enforcement tends to get things done. So whether it be with um, with Russia, with China, with other countries that you perhaps wouldn't think would work uh, and share information um, with Australia when it comes to rescuing a child or, or uh, locking up a sex offender, all that goes out of the window and we all come together and work together as a global law enforcement community. Oh, that is great to know because I know that even on, on drugs, those countries don't work together because... Different jurisdictions have very different penalties for drugs. You know, Singapore has a death penalty for drug smuggling and things like that. So on on drugs, they don't work together. On certain other crimes, they don't have extradition treaties and all that kind of stuff. So that's really great to know that on this one issue, everyone is compatible. So they should be. They, they should be, exactly right. And, and one of the, the ladies I, I work with uh, in Singapore, she was... Uh, and this is, goes to the international flavour of the, the global law enforcement effort to fight child sexual abuse. Um, she was a Serbian. She was working on a, a matter involving a Russian child who had been uh, abducted from a small uh, Russian village. She was getting information sent through from France and Spain in relation to possible suspects who the person might be or where they may be located. And one of the traumatic things for her was that the offender had posted that within a certain time frame that he was going to uh, kill the child. Um, so she was working to what is a, a, a actually traumatic uh, timeline to try and identify the location where this child was located. And the information um, she eventually found out where the child uh, was in a small village in a small Russian town, and she provided the information to Russian law enforcement and Within hours, uh, a SWAT team from Russia was going to that village, going to the door and rescued the child. So when I talk about global law enforcement coming together to combat um, child sexual abuse, there's no borders. So there is a global fight from law enforcement, from the NGOs, the private sector, social media platforms. You would have seen the uh, the debate in the, uh, the US Senate recently um, from some of the tech uh, companies there have been taken to task for their response to hosting, uh, you know, child sexual abuse material. So it's it's a, it's a fight. It's an ongoing fight. It's tough. Uh, it is very tough. It is very tough. And again, though, it comes back to a person's 
worldview because a lot a lot of people, a lot of us, and I'll put myself in that basket, sometimes feel like you just want to throw your hands up in the air and say, the genie's out of the bottle, it's hopeless, those big social media corporations are full of shit basically, pardon my French, but they on one hand reckon, oh, they've got the technology to remove nudes, but on the other hand they encrypt their private messages so that, you know, just enabling predators. And it feels hopeless and it feels like all I can do is pray that I've taught my kids properly and pray that they're safe and pray for the other kids around the world who are being preyed upon. You know, it just feels like it's all too late. But then there's people like you and luckily a lot of people like you who go to work every day and deal with this depravity, see the images and within those images, what you see is things to try and figure out what country that's in, try and save the children in those images. And, you know, it is really remarkable that in this very cynical world, I think, that people like you still exist. Uh, I think there is a reward. I mentioned it before about this intrinsic reward. And, and, you know, what I've said to my staff all the time is we shouldn't care uh, where in the world a child is. If a child is being sexually exploited in a, in a third world country, it shouldn't matter. You know, all our efforts in law enforcement across the globe should go to helping children wherever they are. And yeah, I think many years ago, we might have dismissed it as that's just the way things are in that country. That, that I don't accept that. No. Surely the proliferation of um, child exploitation material can change the culture all around the world if we let it go can't it? It can, I think it can create more real predators. Is there any data to that effect or am I just making that up? No, you, I, I mean, I'll I just bring you up there on, on creating predators. I mean, the predators already exist. I mean, they're the, they're the ones that are taking the photographs. They're the ones that have abused the children. So, But I, I guess what I'm asking you is if people can access that material online, does it create predators? I suppose that's a really, that's a philosophical question. You're a great person to ask because you also have do you have a PhD in philosophy? I have a PhD, yes, I have a PhD. So, yes. <laughs> you're a great person to ask this question. So does the more accessible, you know, this material becomes, does that make more people predators if they can access this material and make it feel more reasonable? Perhaps best I answer that question not from a philosophical point of view, but from an evidence-based point of view. As a copper? Yeah, sure. So I can tell you uh, that from our experience working within online child sexual exploitation, that for every 10 search warrants we do for someone who we know has downloaded or possessed what we call child exploitation material, so images of child being sexually abused, for every 10 search warrants we do, we find one house where there is a child being actually physically offended against. So every 10 doors, there's one child. Now, if we hadn't done that investigation into the online abuse, we would never have found that child. One in 10. Now, the evidence from other research around the world actually puts that rate, unfortunately, a lot higher. There's some evidence by Dr. Michael Burke, who works with the US Marshal's office. He did a study with uh, sex offenders in jail, and he asked them whether they had... uh, committed sex offences and they were in jail for online, looking at online images and downloading online images. And most of the sex offenders there said, no, I've never contacted the against children. He then connected them up to Polygraph, 
a lie detector and ask them the same question. And 50% of the offenders admitted to contact offending against children. So this conversation that goes around sometimes and you know really annoys me that these are just images, these are just mainly men looking at pictures. It's a victimless crime, really is something that I'm you know, it does make my blood boil on occasions because it is not a victimless crime. These are images of children being sexually abused. These are images of crimes actually occurring. And we know from the evidence that what I'm seeing is the viewing of online child sexual abuse material is actually a precursor to contact offending against children. And that's why we are so determined to win this fight against online child sexual exploitation because it is one of the few methods where we can get upstream of the problem. You know, I see um, victims of child sexual abuse come into my office every day and be interviewed by specialist child interviewers. And one of the things I want to do is, is stop them from coming in my door. I don't want to see them come in my door. So one of the ways I can do that is by intervening at a very early stage by targeting those people who are uh, viewing and possessing, downloading and sharing um, online child sexual exploitation material. Also, the fact that everyone has a mobile phone now and, and internet access and all that, does that mean that there's more more child sex assaults are being turned into child exploitation material? Are more assaults being filmed and uploaded? There is certainly a lot more material and, and it's growing day by day and certainly the use of the mobile phone makes it easier. So does end-to-end um, -end encryption, makes it easier for uh, offenders to try to hide what they're doing from law enforcement. It's not impossible for us to find out um, who these people are. It just makes it a bit more difficult. Also powerful is the statistic of um, sexual assault in the disability community in Australia, and that is, I think, a sleeping giant, isn't it, when we talk about sexual abuse in Australia because so many victims are unable to speak for themselves, are unable to communicate exactly what has happened to them. Where... Are you at with that? With I know that, that police are trying to to work on interview tactics and and trying to improve on that. Yeah, it, it is a challenge for us, and and we know that predators target victims who are nonverbal, or in the case of infants, you know, pre-verbal, pre because they don't want victim disclosing to family, friends, or or, or to police. So, so that is tough, and and unfortunately, we see it in the aged care sector as well for the for the same reasons. So, it, it is tough. We we in in Western Australia, we now have an online reporting platform, so people who perhaps find it tough to report face to face to police, and we know it is confronting for people to either pick up a telephone or or go into a police station. You know, we've had reports of people driving to police stations and sitting in the cars in their car park and then backing out. So we have a, a anonymous reporting platform that allows people um, to engage with uh, trained specialist investigators. And it doesn't mean they have to report at that time. They can certainly reach out to our officers here and just ask about the process, what will happen, what happens if I come in to report, you know, what will happen to the offender, what will happen to my family, those sort of things. So we can answer those questions. So We've definitely spoken to people who were being assaulted by their carer. So, you know, the person who they would rely upon to drive them to the police station. So that's obviously not going to happen. So, yeah, an online portal is a great idea. Yeah, we, we developed it in, in consultation in the company with the Crime Stoppers WA and 
It's an anonymous platform, so we like to think of it as an engagement platform because we really need people at some stage to come in and speak to us on the telephone or we'll go and speak to them. But it just it breaks down a bit of a barrier about what is the process and you know we try to get as much information out as possible in relation to what will happen when I report a sexual abuse offence because it, we understand it is tough for people. And when we first launched our, our Safe to Save platform, uh, within a week we had a, a lady report to us a matter of historical sexual abuse that she had kept to herself for 30 years. And she said, if not for this platform, I would have gone to my grave and never reported this abuse. So hearing that, you know, makes it all the more worthwhile and makes me just want to do more. How, how, how else can we engage? And we know we've got a lot of work to do, whether it be in the coal community, whether it be in the disability sector, whether it be in uh, remote First Nations communities. We've got a lot of work to do, but we're not alone in that. We've got our, our partners in government with us and another um, not-for-profit sector. And I keep saying this is a, a community response that's needed. Um, you know, we'll do the best we can with what we what we have, and I know my staff will do the best they can, but this is a, a challenge that the whole community has to face. So what do you want us to know? What do you want the community to know that you're a part of to help you and for you to help us? We always need information from the community, and, and law enforcement can't work without the community we need to be in this together because it's not just a law enforcement problem of course it is a it's a community um, problem we need to ensure programs such as protective behaviors are uh, rolled out in all school programs and and most uh, schools um, have them as part of their curriculum which is a which is a great thing what's protective behaviors so protective behaviors is a program that teaches children uh, about their bodies and and what is but bluntly, what is good touching, what's bad touching, what is normal, if you term it like that, and what is not normal behaviour. So, And to speak to a trusted adult if they feel uncomfortable. So it's just a way of you know educating children. And I know my children did it um, when they went through school, and certainly here in Western Australia, it's part of the uh, Department of Education curriculum, and in a lot of other non-government schools is the same. So... I think it would really help too if we had a national program, if if we had a national language, don't you think? If, say, protective behaviours became the language that every Australian child had. I mean, I know that we need to teach, for example, our children need to be using the correct terminology for the genitalia and things like that. We don't want kids talking about their pee-pees and foo-foos. We want everyone to be using the correct words for things. And it would be great if all Australian kids had the same vocab so that when they spoke to teachers, police, that would cut down on some time and confusion and things potentially, wouldn't it? Well, I really don't care what they call particular parts of their body as long as they... It doesn't make it confusing? No, it doesn't make it confusing. Because we, we, we understand everybody is diverse and, you know, what what you your child calls or intimate parts in your family compared to another is really um, of no concern to us. We... We're just focused on, um, you know, trying to make it as easy as possible for families to talk about these things. It shouldn't be that's not discussed in a family environment. Parents should need should discuss this with their children. It's part of teaching your child about the world. And and unfortunately, it's you know there can be tough things that happen. Um, but 
that doesn't mean you just ignore them with your children. The same as you would teach your child, you know, look out for cars when you cross a road. There's some things of which are uncomfortable for parents to talk about, and I necessarily understand that, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't have those conversations. Yeah, I mean, they have to know the different zones of their body and who can touch what. I thought when I was a kid there was a real go on about, yeah, we had to know the right names for our bodies because it was confusing when kids were reporting sexual assault if they didn't know the right names and all that. So you guys have come a long way, police have come a long way in not being so intimidating, I think. We we, we like to think so. And and certainly the, the specialist um, child interviewers, uh, investigative interviews, who so speak to the children, do an amazing job, absolutely amazing job. And um, I'm so proud of the work they do because I really think that is one of the hardest jobs in our agency. And it's it's okay for me. Well, it's not okay, but it's certainly less impact for me to read these uh, allegations of offences that have happened against children, but to hear it from the children themselves and, and look in the child's face when they're telling you the story is certainly, that's tough. And, I, you know, I sort of realised that when I first came into the division, uh, I mentioned before I came from um, Kalgoorlie, so it was a, a regional centre, we're all about volume crime there, so about burglaries and assaults. And when I first came into this division, I thought, well, I need to look at our crime statistics and I need to make sure we're getting our crime statistics down. So I spoke to my child interviewers and worked out that it takes a certain amount of time to do a child interview and they need to be doing more child interviews. There need to be more child interviews. I was very much statistics driven. And what I'd forgotten about is, of course, about the people involved and especially working in this division. It is all about the people, whether it's my own people or or the people and the victims that um, we look after. And I remember I was walking to to work, and this is how, the, how it was reinforced to me that this is a, all about the, the people and the children because I was walking to work one day from a train station about 10 minutes walk from, from the office. And as I mentioned before, our office is where we do our specialist child interviews. And on my way to work, just in front of me, there was a, there was a mother and a little child. She must have been about five years old walking in front of me and it was a nice spring day. I remember looking at the child and thinking, isn't that a beautiful sight? A mother and a daughter, they were holding hands, walking in the sun on the way to work. And I thought, I just remembered back when my daughter was was that age and thinking, you know, how good life is. And I still remember the, the little girl to this day, she had a yellow dress on, was carrying a, a teddy bear that was sort of almost trailing along, along the footpath as she walked down. And as I walked in front of me, they were about, not about 100 metres from my office and I remember my um, my heart started beating really fast, and I thought, "What's going on here? Am I having a heart attack? What's what's going on?" And as the the mother and the daughter got closer and closer to my office, I started to think, "Oh no, that girl's coming here for an interview." And that's something I remember for a long time. And it took me a long time to, you know, cope with with that image of her coming to the office. And I remember the mother and the daughter, they stood outside the front of the office and the mother was looking at a piece of paper and she was obviously looking up on the wall to see, you know, she's in the right location. And I, I stopped, I saw her and I said, are you here for an interview? Yeah, she said yes. And and it took everything in me to then turn from the mother's face to look at the child's face. And from that moment, that child went from little girl holding a teddy bear, cute little girl, to a victim of child sexual abuse because I knew exactly what she was there for. So I, I 
invited the mother and the and her daughter in and sat them down and waited for the, the child interview to come down. And then I went back to my office and it took me about 10 minutes to compose myself. For a number of reasons. The first reason is I thought, well, how stupid am I putting all that pressure on my staff to pump through child interviews as if we were just some sort of factory? And the second was because, again, I just reflected on how easy it is for a child to become, go from an innocent child one moment and then in the blink of an eye, they're a victim of abuse. And I remember seeing that little girl's face and I, I just thought, she doesn't understand really what, what is happening. And I know what's going to happen. I know what's what the process is. I know the years of struggle and trauma that she may have to uh, go through in the years to come. But at that stage, you know, that look of uh, anxiety, apprehension, innocence, um, that's something that stuck with me for a long time. So when I think, what am I doing here? What am I staff doing here? I remember that little girl, and that's what we're here for. Thank you to our guest today, Detective Superintendent Hamish McKenzie. There's a link in our show notes to the WA Police website. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.